please the court, my name is Marilyn Ozer, and I'm here to defend Wendy Hicks. I'd like this court to visualize the scene a little better, and it might help with Justice Morgan's question about inferences. We're not talking about a house on a golf course that's 3,500 feet. We're talking about a single wide trailer. The bedroom that Wendy was in, blocked into because Caleb wouldn't let her out, was tiny. It was packed with a bed, a chest, a mirror. She couldn't get out. The fact that Caleb was not facing her when she shot him might just show that uh, that was her opportunity because Caleb was six foot one, over 200 pounds in this tiny single wide trailer bedroom. If she had used the gun when he was looking at her, he could have grabbed that gun in an instant, turned it around and killed her. And importantly, the fact that his back was to her does not sustain an inference that he was exiting. Perhaps he was going to exit the bedroom. Wendy's daughter, April, was on the other side of that door. And Wendy had just as much of a right to defend April as she had to defend herself. So there is no inference he was leaving. He might have been walking towards the bedroom door, but he wasn't leaving that trailer. There's no inference he was leaving the trailer. And I would like this court to review April Hicks' testimony because that shows that there was no break between when Caleb was pushing Wendy around the trailer, stomping on her feet and yelling, I'm going to kill you, and the shots. There was no break. He hadn't indicated that he had abandoned his assault. In fact, he had not abandoned the assault. She was in fear for her life. And in the brief and this morning, we hear that she didn't show enough injuries. Well, I don't believe there's anywhere in the statute for a homeowner to have to show a certain degree of injuries before the homeowner has a right to protect herself and her child. In fact, the sheriff noticed bruising. So the story was not made up of whole, whole cloth. She was bruised. He was assaulting her and she showed bruising. What April said was that he came in the same way as he had come in the day before. He burst into the trailer. He started, he banged the dog gate, baby gate down, rushed into Wendy's bedroom with such force that the door hit the chest that's right behind it. And then there's the screaming started she heard her mother being assaulted and then heard gunshots. 
she thought her mother was shot. And back to Chief Justice Newby's remark, I understand your concern with the fact that he may have had a key. That's not what the statute says. Your defensive home, you have a right to defend your home against anyone other than a lawful occupant, what the statute defines as an owner or a lessee. Caleb was none of these. He lived at a house with his wife. The transcript seems to indicate that he, that there was a spare key on the front, in front of the front door, and that's probably how he got in. But if your neighbor knows you've got a spare key, does that give your neighbor a right to burst in whenever he wants? And we know- well, I, What I'm struggling with is I, everything you just said, I think makes a really compelling jury argument on the self-defense issue, but uh, you know, I'm just imagining we see so many cases where it's the criminal defendant saying, I want this instruction. Well, sometimes it's self-defense and saying, and you, know, I've, you have to look at the evidence in the light most favorable to me and have I shown. And here it seems sort of the reverse of that. It's the state saying, uh, we, ju we didn't have a very high bar. We just had to have enough that looking at everything in the light favorable to us, you can infer that uh, your client was the aggressor and you get the instruction. And then it's for the jury to try to piece together what really happened you know, inside that bedroom in that trailer. And isn't the being shot in the back, the fact that she changed her story and maybe isn't credible, isn't that alone enough to raise the question and get the instruction and let the jury decide what really happened? I, I understand your concern with being shot in the back, but as I tried to explain before, that, that was her opportunity to defend herself and her daughter. The case, uh, Cannon or Williams, where the person is shot in the back, is a, a different situation. The defendant in that case wasn't the one that was being assaulted. He was defending a woman in the house. And the uh, victim was setting up to leave. Williams went and got a gun and went after him and shot him. That is just worlds apart from the, the scene in this house where he had never left the bedroom. It all took place in under two minutes. He had had the gun at one point in that two minutes. Nothing was stopping him from grabbing that gun back again because of his size. And the fact that the room was so small Wendy had nowhere to get away from him in that room. She was trying to get out and he was blocking her. He was stomping on her feet to try to get her to fall. So the fact that he shot in the back is not evidence that she was an aggressor. It's just evidence that he happened to be turning around at that point. We don't know he was trying to leave. What, if anything, should we make of what defense counsel said at trial during the course of the jury charge conference uh, when counsel said, quote, I don't think there's any evidence that she was the aggressor, but I will concede that the jury could find that the second shot was excessive, unquote. I think uh, Mr. Wells was probably getting that from case law, which has held in murder that the second shot can show intent. Um, 
I don't think he was correct in this instance because that's contrary to the statute that you were reading, that you have a right to defend yourself, to use deadly force. And um, as my learned counsel has agreed, one shot does not indicate that the person is, is going to even fall down. And this big man could have grabbed the gun. So this court should not in any way, in your estimation, construe what defense counsel said at trial that there would be evidence that could be construed to lead to the aggressor instruction here uh, in that the second shot could be deemed to be excessive by the jury? I, I'm sorry to say this as Mr. Wells is no longer with us, but I think he was incorrect. Second shot doesn't mean you're the aggressor. It means you've been taught that you shoot until the danger has passed. That's what police officers, officers are taught. That's what you're taught in uh, classes about safe handling of guns and when you can use defense. What's your position on what I was engaging the state's counsel in concerning the a homogenization of the two statutes in terms of looking at a rebuttable presumption on one hand that's statutorily set versus the inference that the state would like to see this court give to the two shots in the back as to being an inference being able to be drawn that he was leaving and juxtaposing that with the statutory presumption being rebutted. I think the facts of this case color uh, the interpretation more than they should because the court is looking at a man and a woman who have a relationship instead of looking at a man bursting into a house that he has no right to be in uh, he knows he has no right to be in it because at 5 a.m. he texts, if I have to, I'm going to kick the door down. So there's, there's no rebuttable pre uh, presumption. The presumption has not been rebutted that she had a right to defend her house. And I think it gets colored because... Uh, of things that were said about their long relationship, the tumultuous relationship. And maybe we need to step back and look at it as if this is a stranger who broke in. Would we even be discussing the fact that the burglar was shot twice in his back? I don't think so. Would the burglar have given 30 minutes notice before he arrived or she arrived? What was, the burglar wouldn't have given notice, but what was Wendy supposed to do? She, well, did she try to call law enforcement? I mean, just looking at it from the jury's perspective, and again, the only question was, was the jury properly charged? Right. Um, but I think there's a lot of different nuances that the jury could consider. Well, just Chief Justice Newby, if the jury was going to consider the 30-minute warning, uh, 
it should also consider the fact that she said twice or texted twice, don't come here, stay away, please don't come here. She had a right to think that when she told him not to come, he wouldn't come. He then broke into the house, he found the key, came in without permission, he had no legal right to use that key to come into the house, burst through the dog gate, takes the door off the hinges as he's coming in. He's being very violent, and April, who's listening to it and narrating it, uh, says how violent he's being. I, I don't know exactly what Wendy could have done within that 30 minutes. Calling the police what do we would make take this? a lot of foresight. She would have had to know that he was gonna come in, grab a gun from her and point it at her face. What do we make of the state's position or what should we make of the state's position that the defense of home to the extent that serious bodily harm or even death can be uh, occasioned upon the intruder that she did not have, the defendant did not have the right to engage in that level of force because the other statute, uh, the aggressor doctrine uh, should have been applied here. The aggressor doctrine only gets applied if there's some evidence that she was the aggressor. And what I've maintained at the Court of Appeals and here is there's no evidence. And I don't understand how 1451.4 uh, can take precedence over 51.2, which very clearly states you're even immune from prosecution if what has happened is someone has illegally entered in your, your house violently. And we don't need to have Wendy's word for it was violent. April is on the phone, trying to get on the phone with her boyfriend because the day before, Caleb had done the same thing. Her boyfriend was so worried about his violent, Caleb's violent nature that he had left his gun with April. And when she finally did get up with her boyfriend, he said, take the gun, walk very slowly into your mother's bedroom because Caleb might still be there and Caleb might be armed. So there's just no presumption, uh, no evidence that he were the, was the aggressor. And I don't quite understand how those two statutes would uh, work together if again, we're not talking about a man and woman who, who know each other, but a stranger. Are, is the state's position that if a stranger broke into the house, um, you can become the aggressor somehow? I, I, don't, I can't imagine that situation. Does that go to reasonableness of the, the fear though? That it's a stranger versus uh someone that, that you have some, some familiarity with? It would be if in, if in this case, Caleb hadn't demonstrated over the last several days what his character was like when he was high on meth. And 
he could have been a perfectly gentle, nice person before the drug addiction got to him again, but there were three different days that he went to Wendy's house and got involved in an altercation. On Saturday was when Daniel, April's boyfriend, saw him, and Daniel was so upset by Caleb's violent nature, that's when he gave April the gun, or had her keep the gun with her when he went to work in the morning. And the day before, on Monday, Caleb had come in again very violent, knocking things over as he went in and making threats about what he was going to do to her. That day she was able to calm him down. Something different was this day. Maybe it was the level of meth in his bloodstream. We know that he had recently taken meth because of the ratio of methamphetamine to amphetamine in his system, according to the pathologist. He was very high, I think it's 1.5 milligrams. The pathologist testified that if he hadn't been shot, a possible cause of death could have been meth overdose. Let, let me ask, so, so you would agree with me with the, the question I asked of your friend, that upon entry, the decedent could have been shot by the defendant? Yes, sir, I agree with that. And, and at, at some point, if, if the decedent is in the home long enough, the reasonableness of the threat dissipates. I am sure there's a situation where that would be accurate. But and, what, and, and what I'm, we I'm have sorry. in this case is less than two minutes from entry to being shot. No, I understand. And, and I am speaking specifically of uh, this situation where there is some relationship, not the burglar, because that, that may well be different. But if there is, if there is um, an immediacy um, uh, component to the reasonableness of the threat, um, where do we draw that line? What factors do we look at uh, to draw that line? In this case, I believe if Caleb had exited the bedroom, exited the trailer, and was then shot, she would have been the aggressor. But he hadn't even exited her bedroom. And within the two minutes, he had, he had had control of the gun at one point, pointed it at her head was being violent to her. And we're talking a lot about guns and she was armed, he wasn't. Well, in real life, if you're a woman and a six foot one, over 200 pound man, high on meth is throwing you around the room, he's armed, he can kill you, he doesn't need a gun. And more importantly, if she had a gun, he could have gotten it away from her in an instant. So this whole debate about armed rather, or unarmed doesn't apply in this situation. He could have been armed at any second he wanted to be armed. You said something earlier about the daughter being on the other side of the room, uh, or the other side of the door in the adjacent room. Are you asking us to as we continue to use these artful terms, inference and presumption, are you asking us to infer that the decedent was in position as he was turning while shot in the back to therefore be going into the room where the daughter was? Or are you asking us to extend the presumption under the statute 
to defense of another in terms of there still being this opportunity under the statute for the defendant to be in position to inflict serious bodily harm or death against the intruder? Uh, Justice Morgan, I would say it was the second, that we looked to the statute and the presumption that the homeowner has the right to defend herself and her child. And in this case, it was her child and her child's friend. So the presumption under the statute is that she has a right to protect her child and the other occupants of the house. The trial court gave the defense of habitation, defense of home, jury instruction, correct? Yes, sir. And it, was there a problem with that instruction? There wasn't a problem with that instruction, but he gave the aggressor doctrine, I think it was eight times. And part of the aggressor doctrine, which was especially prejudicial, was that words alone are enough to be the aggressor. And we all know that that means that if two young men are on the street trash talking each other, that's enough for the trash talker to be the aggressor. But the jury didn't know that. And they had sat through over two days of listening to things that uh, Wendy had said to Caleb and Caleb had said back in text. And importantly, that morning or seven hours before that, Wendy had <coughs> threatened to um, send some very explicitly disgusting photos of sex organs to Caleb's wife. There's no question that the jury could have taken the part of the aggressor doctrine that words alone are enough to turn you into the aggressor to mean that they could find she was the aggressor because of what she had done seven hours earlier. Well, she was instructed, the jury was instructed by the trial court that, um, that the, uh, with regard to second degree murder, uh, only if Ms. Hicks, I'm quoting, was the aggressor with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily injury upon the deceased. Uh, is that a, a wrong statement of the law? Excuse me, could you repeat the question? Yes. So uh, it, it, the trial court instructed that the defendant would not be, with regard to second degree murder, would not be uh, entitled to uh, a defense of self-defense or defense of home if Ms. Hicks was the aggressor with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily harm. So is that, is that a correct statement of the law? I, I'm not ob objecting to the statement of the law. I'm objecting to whether or not that doctrine, the aggressor doctrine, was constitutionally applicable to, in this case. Could he instruct correctly on the aggressor doctrine if there was no evidence from which the jury could arrive at a decision that she was the aggressor. I'm not, it, does that answer your question, Chief Justice? Well, and the, the trial court also gave the instruction 
with regard to no duty to retreat, quote, absent evidence to the contrary, the lawful occupant of a home is presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm to herself or another when using defensive force that is intended or likely to cause death <coughs> or serious bodily harm to another if both of the following apply. And then it talks about uh, the person against whom the defensive force was used had unlawfully and forcibly entered the home and the person using defensive force knew or had reason to believe that an unlawful and forcible entry or unlawful and forcible act was occurring or had occurred. You don't disagree with that statement of the law, do you? I don't disagree with the jury instructions other than the fact that he gave the aggressor doctrine eight separate times. Well, and by you're saying that, you're assu I'm assuming, because there, there's one time that he gave the aggressor doctrine. Now, he probably mentioned the aggressor doctrine more frequently in the, in, than that. But with regard to an actual statement of what the aggressor doctrine meant, doctrine meant uh, he did that once, correct? Uh, he gave the aggressor doctrine in full as a preamble to the instruction on second degree and involuntary. He then repeated it in second degree. He repeated it in involuntary. Uh, it occurs on pages 2548, 2549, 2550, 51, 53, 54, 55, and 56. Well, if you look at 2548, certainly you get his explanation of that, of the aggressor doctrine. But if you look at some of the other pages that you've mentioned, it simply is a mentioning that the, uh, the aggressor doctrine could be applicable to whatever is being described there, correct? Our position is that's where the harm is because all the way through the jury instructions, he keeps referring back to the aggressor doctrine. And we need to assume that the jury heard the first explanation and is using that explanation to inform the subsequent mentions of the aggressor doctrine. It's not as if they have forgotten the, the preamble aggressor doctrine. Uh, they're just being reminded of it seven more times. Uh, just to recap, Wendy Hicks was lying in bed 6.28 in the morning when a man enraged with meth came in pointed a gun at her, her gun, but pointed the gun at her, started throwing her around the room or knocking her into furniture. She was able to get the gun back. She used it in self-defense. No evidence of the aggressor doctrine. And the only way a jury could have found that this was not a shooting in defense of the daughter is if they believed she was not entitled to it because she was the aggressor. We ask this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. 